Hello everyone, this is Rico and this is Treks in Sci-Fi for the Midweek Show, episode 79 for October the 11th, 2006. Going to do a special uh, podcast this week with a guest interview, so stand by, here we go. Treks in Sci-Fi. God forbid I should have to agree with Spock, but he was right. Yeah, Jimmy boy. Hey, I've taken care of everything. Now all y'all got to do is just relax. Doctor's orders. Hello, everyone. This is Rico, and we have a special guest today that we're going to do an interview with. Her name is Christine Smith, and she wrote a memoir of her experiences with DeForest Kelly. Hello, Christine. Are you there? I am. Thank you. Okay, the uh, the book she re- wrote, excuse me, is called uh, DeForest Kelly, A Harvest of Memories, My Life in Times with a Remarkable Gentleman Actor. That's quite a uh, quite a mouthful of a title. I, I, I really uh, I really like uh, what I've read about it. I haven't had a chance to read the, the entire book yet, uh, but it, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your you know your early experiences with Star Trek, how you first got involved and interested in the show. And then, and then we'll get more into the book. Certainly. Um, actually, my dad and my cousin Tim were watching the show the, the first few weeks it was on, and they were just so into it, and everybody had to drop dead and hush up and not say a word during the show. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stepped in, and I was making fun of them, more or less, saying, you're in love with a little green man with pointed ears and just... But then the more I watched it and the more I had to hush up and listen while it was going on, the more I truly, truly fell in love with it. And so you were you were watching it when it was originally uh, airing in the, in oh, the 60s, yes, even. Uh, this carbon dates me. Yes, it, I certainly was. I was a teenager when Star Trek came on. Okay. Well, so you're a, you're a long-time fan of, of the series. Now, have you... Uh, I am. Are you uh, just mainly the uh, a fan of the original series, then, with uh, with your interest in DeForest Kelly and all? Or, or did you continue to watch Star Trek throughout the other uh, various incarnations? I watched the first about year and a half of The Next Generation, but I pretty much have gotten away from watching TV pretty much entirely. Okay. So if you ask me very much about it, I would be like a deer caught in headlights. But the original series I'm pretty familiar with. Okay. So the um, so you were you were there at the beginning and did you uh, become then involved in going to like some of the early early Star Trek conventions with with some of the uh, actors and those early times when Star Trek was just in reruns? Were you involved uh, in doing that at all? Actually, I wasn't. I was a little intimidated by the uh, publicity and the media stuff about Star Trek conventions, and I thought only people in in blue makeup and pointy ears went to these Weirdos. things. Weirdos. I wasn't. Weirdos, right? I really <laughs> did. I was very, very concerned. <laughs> um, I think my first Star Trek convention, yeah, I, the first Star Trek convention I ever went to was one that DeForest was at. Okay. And that was because I owed him a thank you. He launched my writing career. Okay. So, um, yes. So you were more of one of those. You watched it on television. You enjoyed it, and maybe you could uh, tell 
tell everyone a little bit about uh, you know what you found uh, sort of I hate to use the word fascinating or <laughs> but the the uh, you know the kind of the appeal to, of Star Trek for you at least personally what what was it that really you know grabbed your attention? I just love the the uh, the interaction, especially of the three main characters. I love the hope that it showed for the future because it was during the 1960s, and I mean our country was coming apart at the seams. Yeah. And it just seemed like a hopeful wave of the future thing. There, there was multiracial and multinational crew on that ship, and we certainly weren't in any way that way in the 1960s. The hope was there. The generation was there that said, you know, things need to change, and they were shaking things up and scaring a lot of people half to death. But those changes hadn't been made yet, and it was a very, very upsetting decade. We had assassinations left and right and all kinds of things, and... and Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future basically told us we would have a future, that we would get along eventually, and that we would be able to marshal all of our passion and love and power into peaceful pursuits that would actually bring people forward together into a, into a hopeful future instead of what we were looking at from the 60s. Yeah, that, I, I think sometimes people these days, especially... Uh, people that weren't familiar with that time at all and I, i'm i'm in that age a little bit the i grew up in the the in the, the excuse me i'm stumbling today uh, the detroit area and you know in the detroit area at that time it was not a uh a, not a good place and there were right. a lot of problems there and i think people really sometimes forget to realize and now it seems when you watch you know these old old 40-year-old reruns of Star Trek, it doesn't seem so innovative or fresh or original, but, you know, setting it, like you said, in those times, and, and the, the idea that these people of different races and beliefs and things, and even aliens, could all come together in a, and work together to a common, uh, you know, good future and goal was uh, was very, you know, very unique and, and it was revolutionary. pretty outrageous. Was. And, and yeah. a lot of, you know, you read some of the old, old stories and books about Star Trek and how hard it was to get, you know, to push the envelope and all that. And I, I just, uh, I think a lot of people really don't quite get, and, and I, I truly believe, and maybe you do too, that, that I think some of, you know, some small part perhaps of what Star Trek did then has sort of, uh, you know, gotten us to the point we are now. We're certainly, we certainly still have, I think, a long way to go, but I do believe that, that, that little bit, even though it's, you know, basically a piece of entertainment on television, yeah, I think it helped, you know, and it got I people got people agree. thinking got people thinking that things could be better. So uh right. yeah, it's it's uh it is uh you know, it's been around for forty years now and it's I still think uh we have a long way to go, but I, I do think things are better and I think Star Trek's part of that. So so DeForest Kelly. DeForest Kelly was uh was that you mentioned that the three main characters, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, you know, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, were was a good part of why you really enjoyed the show so much. How did you? Uh, what got you uh, hooked up originally with D? And and could you tell us a little bit about uh, how that all come up, came about? You mentioned that he helped uh, launch your writing career. Right during the third year of Star Trek in 68, before actually the 68th season came around, DeForest Kelly was going to be 
in a parade at Wenatchee, Washington, which was across the state from where I lived at the time. And I had been watching Star Trek now for a couple of years, and I just kind of wanted to go to this parade and watch him go by. I just kind of wanted to see him uh-huh. in person one time, even if it was just a brief little thing, and there he was. Um, so I drove across the state, and as luck would have it, or fate, or God, or whatever you want to call it, I ended up parking um, in a parking lot very near where the parade route was, obviously. But what I didn't realize is that it was on the same street that Dee and Carolyn were, had a hotel there. That's where they had put them up that night. Okay. And so as I was walking toward the parade route, I noticed the white limousine that said Mr. and Mrs. DeForest Kelly, Dr. McCoy, Star Trek. And I thought, woo, if I, you know, loiter shamelessly here for a while, uh, okay. I might be able to actually, you know, see him and meet him, not just watch him go by. So I hung around there, and eventually Dee and Carolyn came out and got into the car, and I was a little hesitant to approach him because I had been um, in the presence of other stars who seemed to be terribly, terribly full of themselves. I'm not talking about Star Trek stars. I'm just talking about stars in general. Yeah. Um, And I wasn't really sure if he would appreciate that kind of an intrusion where he gets into a car and a bunch of people surround him. Right. Because a lot of actors don't like that. Yeah, they can get a a little scared sometimes, I think, too. Yeah, and I have a very high regard for, you know, am I imposing on this person or or would they genuinely, you know, appreciate if I approach them? So I basically hung back, and I watched him interact with some of these other fans, and I thought, oh, my gosh, he is just so appreciative and so friendly and so approachable. And I I did that for about five minutes, and finally um, I just stepped up to the curb, and Carol and Mrs. Kelly said, hello, you know, and I said, hello, and I was nervous wreck still, and I just exchanged a few words with them, and I just realized just at that moment that these were salt-of-the-earth people. Yeah. And on the way home that evening, as I was driving home, I just felt this cocoon of warmth, and I thought, my gosh, I've never met anybody as classically... I guess I want to call it his classically Southern gentleman before. He seemed like he truly appreciated the interaction. He truly saw you. He truly cared. And so on the way home, yeah, he seemed. I uh, thought, sounds like he seemed very genuine, which is a oh, he was very genuine, absolutely. Which especially and, for somebody that's you know had been around Hollywood a long time, like he had been at, even then, you know that's uh, I'm sure very refreshing. It was his first really chance at being in what they call an overnight success. He had been in Hollywood for 20 years. Right, doing movies. He had been a solid working actor Mm -hmm. in movies and in TV, but he didn't have the kind of popularity that he had until Star Trek. So I think even in spite of that, I think he was always that genuinely appreciative. I don't think he became that appreciative. He was raised that way. Yep, that's just the Um, way he was. That's just the way he was, yes. And so on the way home from this trip, uh, there was a creative writing assignment due in our class, and I thought, well, I'll write an essay called The Real McCoy. Wasn't that clever? <laughs> uh, just basically to let people know what it was like to meet a, an actor who was so genuinely there for you. Yeah. And so I wrote this article called The Real McCoy, and I turned it into my teacher, and he said, you know, Chris, this is really good. I think you should send him a copy. And I backpedaled like crazy. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I don't write to movie stars. And he said, well, if you impress somebody as obviously as he impressed you, 
wouldn't you want to know? And I said, well, yeah, but he's an actor. He probably hears it ten times a day. And he basically just pulled rank on me, and he said, send it. Uh-huh. And I knew I was going to get marked down in my citizenship grade or whatever they mark you on if you don't obey. Right. So I sent it off and pretty much forgot about it at that point because um, Robert Kennedy's assassination came up and the whole thing's just kind of, the world the world again began spinning out of control. And I kind of had it totally out of my mind. And then I got a letter from DeForest saying that uh, he had been so impressed with the article that he had submitted it to a New York publisher, and they wanted to use it as a special holiday article. Wow. And it just blew me away because I had always wanted to be a writer. I had been writing since I was probably eight or nine years old and could string words together. Yeah. But I just never had that self-concept or the self-confidence to be able to consider myself a real writer. So he sent it off. They printed it word for word, and, I mean, it just blew me away. My parents had to peel me off the ceiling. I was <laughs> so excited. Um, and that's how it started. That's pretty impressive. I mean, I can't yes. think of anyone else or, you know, I've had some interactions with some stars and things like that over the years at conventions and so on. And But for him to take the time and, and the effort to think about you and to send off that article like that uh, was just uh just amazing i I mean here's a guy who was in a pretty big uh you know busy schedule and show and everything that he was doing at the time and you know to be that thoughtful and to go ahead and do something like that for another person that you know that he just did that because he was being like you say a a very nice southern gentleman and there was no it wasn't going to benefit really him in any way especially or anything like that he was just trying to do something good for you which you had, you know, right. you had written something, you know, obviously uh, nice about him, but I don't think it was that. It was just, you know. I don't think it was that either. He, no, did, he had maybe some thought. connections too, I believe. You know, perhaps maybe they would, they would listen to, uh, you know, him sending that article along, maybe rather than if you had just stuck it in an envelope and sent it off to them. You know, maybe it got a little more attention, and, and that would uh, very possibly. It's a, it's a good possibility. So he got this article published for you, and and therefore. Uh, you were a uh, a published uh, writer at the time. Did you did you get paid for that article too? Then I would imagine I didn't you probably... get paid. No, no, I didn't get paid for that article. And you know what? It's the best article. No, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that didn't matter to me at all that I didn't get paid for it. I think a lot of people um, uh, that are writers, I think in general, and a lot of people that are passionate about what they do, you know, they don't. It's a lot of them that I've talked to in different you know capacities. They, they do it at first because they love it, you know, and the fact right. that they can eventually maybe make some money off of it and, and make a living is almost secondary. You know, you said you were writing even before this happened because obviously yes, it's something but I didn't have. you like to do. Yeah, but I didn't have the, yes. So that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to be able to do something that you like to do and have, you know, that added little extra thing of, of maybe making some, some financial, uh, rewards off of it too. So then you, uh, so then where did it progress from there? He sent that off for you, and obviously you must have uh, been in contact with him a little bit throughout that and, and thanked right. him, I'm sure. So so right. go ahead with the, um, um, the story. The go thing ahead. that happened from that was, uh, first of all, the six months you wait after something has been accepted, the entire time I thought, oh, they're going to change it. Right, they're right. Going, it's not going to look like It'll be one like little me. paragraph or, or something. I just yeah. had this sense that I don't measure up. Well, then when the article came out and it was word for word exactly how I had written it, I wrote 
to DeForest again and thanked him so much because I, like I say, I was paranoid. I wasn't sure that what I wrote is what was going to end up there, that it might be so heavily edited. And when I realized it wasn't, it kind of made me realize, hey, I really, I really am a writer. So I wrote to thank him again, and then I was going to write another time. This will this will blow you away. Okay. I will. I was going to write yet a third time and and thank. He wrote back saying he was he was delighted the article was published and he hoped it would make me a celebrity in my own right in my uh-huh. hometown. And I was going to write him again, and my mom says, "Chris, the man has been very kind to you. Don't drive him nuts with your incessant letters." Uh-huh. Because I was a huge pen pal at the time. I had lots of Star Trek pen pals and stuff and mm-hmm. I was I'm a writer writers love to write sure. and I thought she was right I figured she was right I'm going to I'm going to drive him nuts if I keep doing this so I basically cut off all contact after thanking him of course right and I and I did for I'm not kidding you 18 years there was a reason for that the reason was that we were building restaurants all over the country and we were living in a fifth wheel trader kind of all over the country, we really didn't have an address to where I could write to somebody and have them write back or anything. Okay. We were more or less living like turtles. So when I rehooked up with him, it was 1988. It was the 20th anniversary of Star Trek. Okay. And he was going to be in a con- at a convention again across the state. By this time, I had dozens and dozens of articles written and published and paid for, and I realized I really owe this gentleman a very long overdue thank you for giving me the encouragement that I needed at a young age to believe I really, really, really did have something that I could share with the world that they would appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I wrote him a very silly note, and it really was a silly note. Um, Oh, you also have to remember, I was not hugely aware that Star Trek had made any kind of resurgent, because building restaurants. I hardly ever watched TV. I didn't know about Star Trek conventions. I didn't know about what happened in 72 to make this whole thing come back the way that it did. Right, so, the, movie, the early movies, and by 88, the right. uh, the next generation had started, too, the first, uh, the first no, year. No, it hadn't yet. It well, hadn't yet. It should have. It started. Oh, yes. In, it was just about to, right. Yeah, 80, 87 so, it would have premiered, so it just, just got right. going, really. So this was 1986, the year before, and they okay. were making... They were still talking about maybe doing some movies or some TV shows. Oh, okay, yeah, right. The them. the 20th right. really would have been 1986. I thought you had said 88. Right. right. Okay, yes, right. it was about a year away from Next Generation, yeah. Right. So I sent him this very funny note. I mean, humorous, I thought, but I said, I owe you a long overdue hug for launching my writing career. Hope to see you in Spokane. And I included the original article that he had published for me figuring he had forgotten all about it. This is 20 years later, sure. 18 years later. Yep. So um, I sent it off, and as soon as I did that, I was looking around and realizing that Star Trek had really come back in a big way, and I started like practically crucifying myself. What kind of an idiot are you telling him you owe him a long overdue hug? And I just got very, very insecure and uh, teenagerish again. And I yeah. thought, oh, my gosh, that is just ridiculous. And I almost talked myself out of going, but then I got a note from him, and it said, I enjoyed the photos of your pretty house and pets, wishing you continued happiness, or was it success? I'd have to look again. Wishing you continued happiness, DeForest. And it was in his own handwriting, and I thought, what does that mean? Does he want to see me in Spokane? Oh, 
I doubt that. If I go over there, I'll just be all disappointed. I won't be able to meet him. And I was kept back and forth on should I go or shouldn't I go. Well, finally, I had a 10-year-old, 11-year-old nephew who really, really wanted to go, and I thought, well, I'll take him. Again, I had never been to a Star Trek convention. I was terribly certain I would stick out like a sore thumb, mm-hmm. and yeah. I thought, well, I'll take my little 11-year-old nephew along because he can wear a Trek shirt, and I, I can look like I'm escorting him. I, I'm taking him, you know. Yeah, you got a little buffer there. Yeah, no. I got I'm... a little buffer there. <laughs> yeah. And then I walked into the convention hotel, and it was like, I didn't need to do that. Most of the people who come here aren't aren't dressed up like Klingons. And, and besides, it was neat, the ones who were dressed up. It was just fascinating, but I didn't. I did. I figured everybody was like that, and I would stick out like a sore thumb because I wasn't dressed that way. Yeah, I think a lot I very of, a lo- quickly found out. I think a lot yeah. of people think that. Yeah, you know, when, especially when the news shows. I've been at a lot of conventions where they have the local news show up with cameras, and and right. of course the shots they're going to take aren't the people and that are in street clothes that look like they just came out of you know their office. They're going to take pictures of the Klingons and the people in their that's right. Starfleet uniforms, and that's just a small percentage of the people that go to that's those. Right. And, you know, there might be some people with T-shirts, like you said, and, and that. But it, it's it's you know ninety percent of the people there are just there to you know to hear the stars talk, maybe buy a couple little that's things, right. and and they're just you would walk by them on the street and you would never realize uh, that's right anything. So that's you right. so you're there with your nephew. So I was there, and I went up to the, and I did bring a copy of the article. I mean, the original the original magazine, hoping that if I got to meet see him again, I could have him sign it for me. Sure, but. I went up to the hotel concierge and I asked, is there any chance you could get a note for Mr. to Mr. Kelly for me? And he looked at me and he said, no. You know, and I <laughs> knew he'd been asked that question 150 times already. And I knew if, that, if they did that kind of stuff, they wouldn't have any time to do what they're supposed to be doing there. Yeah, and I realized, yeah. you know, this is, this is hopeless. Um, during that weekend, I was pretty broke at the time. Um, and I stayed in a KOA campground because the hotel where it was at, I just couldn't afford the, the costs there. Mm-hmm. So I was in a KOA campground. Well, unknown to me, DeForest and Carolyn called the convention hotel trying to find me, figuring I was staying there. When they couldn't find me there, they called other hotels in the area trying to find me. Oh, my. And they couldn't find me. I mean, I, now I don't know this. I'm in a KOA campground, and I'm trying to what I can to make a contact, but it's been turned away. Yes. So, and and Dee wasn't supposed to appear until Sunday, so I waited through Friday and Saturday and went to the convention and watched everything and actually volunteered there to help out while we were waiting. And then Sunday Sunday afternoon, Dee comes out, and I'm sitting in the audience about maybe 14 feet away from the stage, not on a chair. They had allowed some of us to come up and sit on the floor, and I, but I was still probably eight or ten rows back. There were a lot of fans ahead of me. And when he came on, there was this thunderous applause. I mean, the, the house came down. It was just so affectionate and so loud. and so I mean, standing ovation. And I thought, no way in the world am I going to have the guts to stand up and thank him and in this kind of a crowd. Mm-hmm. So so he came out, and he started to do his appearance, and he, yeah. they talked, and he read his poems, and he answered questions from the crowd, and then I saw him starting to look at his watch, and I thought, you know, if you don't do it now, you're never going to have another chance. You need to at least try. So I put my hand up. Well, there were a thousand hands up. 
and it was entirely a God thing that he picked me because he did not recognize me, and I was back, you know, a ways. Uh-huh. But he looked at me, and he pointed to me, and he said, yes, you. And I said, very quietly, because I really didn't want to stop the convention from doing what it was doing. Right. You didn't want to say, hey, we need him. to go talk, and can you sign this? And right. Yeah. No, I didn't even want to do that. I just kind of said as quietly as I could so that he could still hear it. I just wanted to thank you for launching my writing career. And he looked at me and he said, are you Chris? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, I've been looking all over for you. <laughs> and I just about, if I hadn't been sitting down, I would have fallen down, you know. That's and he amazing. said, let me tell you yeah. about this girl. And he told the entire convention about meeting me and that he'd launched my writing career. And this Phil Donahue type comes up with a microphone out of nowhere and sticks it in my face expecting me to say something and, and I you know I'm totally like, speechless. Yeah. <sighs> you know, and so um so I whispered into the mic, right? So only he could hear it, right? Yeah. May I give you a hug? <laughs> and he goes, You certainly may. Come on up here. So I I jumped up onto the stage and I patted him on the back and I said, Thank you so much and he said, We're proud of you. Don't lose touch. And then once not long after that um, the next day I was in the hotel lobby, and I was talking to another Trek fan, fan, a Seattle programmer, and I heard this huge communal intake of breath, and somebody said, there's DeForest Kelly. And all the way across this throng of fans in the uh, opposite corner of where I was, uh-huh. DeForest and Carolyn were coming on their way out to the car that would take him back to the airport. And I thought, well, you know, Chris, you've had your time with him, and it's nice to see him in the whole line yards, but I was just going to stay back. And he spotted me across the thing, and he goes, Chris, how are you? Good morning. And I, I waved, good morning. And he grabs Carolyn's hand, Carolyn's hand, and he starts to come across through the throng of fans in my, di- in my direction. And I'm like, mm-hmm. You're like flabbergasted. Mm-hmm. Your knees are getting totally weak. Totally flabbergasted. And... Yeah. So I, I, of course, went to meet them when I realized they were coming to me, and Carolyn took both of my hands in hers, and she says, Chris, what happened to you? We always wondered what happened to the little girl who wrote so well. And I, I told her that we'd been traveling and we didn't have any ability to be in touch. So she gives me her address, and she says, now, don't lose touch. Send us your articles. And that's how it began. And this is only into, onto about page 45 of this 270-page book. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Because it, that was just the very beginning. I ended up moving to Hollywood. They encouraged me to move to Hollywood and try to find a job in the entertainment industry, which I did. And uh, they just were complete and total gracious encouragers who did things like this to not just me, to many fans. Every time I go to a convention and speak, the people who come to me afterwards to tell me about their experiences with D, they mirror my own. This is not like a once-in-a-blue-moon thing that he did. This man just extended grace and appreciation and courtesy every time he made a contact. Yeah, yeah, and I even... I used uh, to live down... He, I was just going to say... I used I, to live down in the... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I, when I, I had a chance to see him a couple of times in person, and one thing I always remembered was... You had mentioned that he, you know, he would do his convention appearance and read some poetry. And one thing I noticed is a lot of times he would talk not just about, oh, I was doing this movie or we were working on Star Trek V or whatever, but a lot of times he he told a lot of stories about different fans that he had met, people that had gone into uh, medicine because of Dr. McCoy. And, right. and he would even pull things out like, you know, maybe even your... Uh, 
your article or little things he would he would pull out and read a little excerpt from of you know a fan that would right. wrote him and say thanks so much for for making this wonderful character and that would you know really inspired me to go on and and work on a cure for some disease or whatever they happen to be but i mean he was very always he always impressed me as being very uh in touch and 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 touched both uh by the fans and and always tried as much as he could to help out where he could uh i I was always very impressed with the way he did that so go go ahead with your yes his appearances were always so much more about the fans than they were about him he was basically saying without saying it you are my legacy i mean carolyn indeed didn't have children he realized he said he he would often say, I don't know how it came to be the way it came to be. I just got very, very lucky. He got way more than very, very lucky. The man was a blessing, and therefore he was constantly blessed by his fans. Exactly. People would come back and right. tell him, this is what you did for me. And it would, I mean, very often you would, he would tear up as people were telling them. There was this one particular um, occasion in Denver. I remember a, a lady stood up probably in her late 30s or early 40s and she said you don't know me from adam mr kelly but i just wanted you to know and she went on to relate this horrendous horrendous childhood she had had growing up Mm -hmm. and she said in the midst of all that i just kind of adopted you as my father and i just wanted you to know that if i hadn't done that i might not even be here today anymore you know and she said i was just wondering if i could give you a hug and he put his arms out to her and with every every ounce of sincerity in his heart mm-hmm. he put his arms out and he said come to papa and i mean there was not a dry eye in the house the entire place was just so touched and he meant it i yep. mean it wasn't yep it no, was, he, he was he was papa. just you know you, i will be your father you know yep and he, he was, was just that kind of a human being yeah very very genuine always at least from from yeah. what i could see and from everybody that i've ever talked to like you and and other fans that have seen him, and other people that have had dealings uh, over the years, it's just uh, it's mm-hmm. just very very impressive, especially working in the kind of you know job that he did, working in the Hollywood environment, right. working throughout all those years, and you know you hear all kinds of stories about how people change, how it's such a mm-hmm. tough it's such a tough mm-hmm. job and a tough town to work in, and to not have that seem to really affect you to be able to stay that sincere and that genuine you know his, his right. you know strength of character there has to be uh you know pretty amazing at least to me i mean he, it's it's very difficult to, and uh i was i was and always to, very to have very, a marriage that's yes oh yeah definitely to have a I mean, marriage that's 54 years long and was ended only by death right uh, in hollywood and, that's practically exactly. unheard of and that was another thing that i you always know, he was raised he always, rem- I, I always know. remembered. I'm sorry, we're we're probably lagging each other out. I was just going to say, okay. the other thing I always remembered that he'd always talk about, just about every time I saw him, was he would always mention his wife. And he read that one poem right. about him. You know, I'm still here. You know, playing Doctor McCoy with the same wife and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I always found right. that pretty. Uh, you know, it was very touching when he read that. And, and he, you know, yes. it, and again, being in Hollywood and, and married that long to the same woman i mean even beyond hollywood people don't do that very right. often so uh right but go on with um and he often yeah go ahead yes. go ahead chris he often said of carolyn i make the living but she makes the living worthwhile she was his you know his co-partner 
his lover, his life, his wife. I mean, they were so wrapped up in each other, and that was one of the neat things that I saw about those two that I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the kind of marriage everybody wants. Yeah. And when yeah. they walk down the aisle together, this is the marriage they think they're going to have. And and it was just wonderful to see them always hand in hand. I think one of the, I don't know how many of the viewers or listeners are aware of this, but Dee was raised uh, by a Southern Baptist preacher. So, I mean, he had the training of, you know, raise him up in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. He got his his graciousness, strangely enough, although his father was the preacher, I think he got most of his real sensitivity and the graciousness and the appreciation from his mother. Okay. And she was really his biggest supporter. His father thought he was going straight to hell when he was decided to become an actor. It really broke his father's heart because he wanted him to become a preacher. Obviously, with the gifts he had, he would have been an enormously wonderful preacher. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he had a ministry, and it was us. And he just elected, you know, his passion was to, he fell into acting, but when he got into it, it just took him over, and he really, really wanted to do that. And yeah, so when you, he, and when you think about it now, too, I mean, he's he's obviously reached so many more people than if he had stayed, a, you know, a preacher in his town than he ever could have. A and preacher it, or a doctor. Know, I mean, he right. often thought about being a doctor as a young man, and I thought, well, how many people, how many doctor, how many Dr. McCoy, McCoy clones are there walking around because he beside, decided to be an actor? Exactly. You know, exactly. he could only have been one Dr. Kelly, and and yet all of these, his his legacy is probably in every hospital there is now. An awful lot of the uh, graduation ceremonies give a tip of the hat to bones right right definitely it's um it's just uh it's it's very amazing you know it's one of the things that i've always really you know been impressed at and probably uh why i've stuck with star trek for for all the years that i have is is just that that it's you know you hear about so many bad things sometimes in the world in the news and in other places and and even television and you mentioned a couple of times that you don't really you're not really much of a tv watcher and and i can understand that because truthfully so much of it that they show both the news and even the the programs is just really not worth watching but here this show uh not just good entertainment but also right. you know the the kind of messages that they they put forth in the in the various episodes the way the characters act with each other the kind of uh you know they're they're role models for so many people i think and uh, and it's, it's the values there the, there's the values not enough in the, the shows are great Yep. And the fact that there are hurting people out there who need something to believe in. Yep, there's a they're, lot. They're everywhere. There's a lot, a lot of they people need, out there that really, uh, that really need that at different times in their life, and, and that don't, uh, unfortunately, don't have another way to, to see that besides something like that's this. That's right. So that's uh, right. The um, the thing I wanted to move on to um, switch a little bit, but uh, the the book that you wrote, this memoir of of your experiences with D over the years, now. Did that? Uh, when did that actually kind of get started? Did you do that uh, later on, or, or give me a little background on, on when you wrote oh. that and, and how that came about? Okay. Well, being a writer, I have I have like 250 journals from the time from 1966 on, and at the end of DeForest's life, I became his personal assistant and his caregiver, and he gave me permission to write this book. He also gave me permission to write the biography, but I realized I'm an anecdotal writer. I am not a, 
a researcher, historian. Mm-hmm. So um, I contacted Terry Lee Rio, who wrote From Sawdust to Stardust, which is Dee's biography. Right. And okay. I gave her all of the names that he had given me, and I said, you run with this. I'm going to do <laughs> I'm going to do the memoir. You do the uh, history because I wanted him to. I wanted him to get a top-notch biography. Right. And I realized it wasn't going to come from me. Yeah, that takes so, a lot, a lot was, of uh, different kinds of writing and different kind of work to do that than I think what you ended up writing a little more personal. It absolutely account. does. Right. So then right. he he was he was. And she had a little more. She had a little more distance. Although she was a Star Trek fan, she had never met Dee. She had come close a couple of times, and I think an historian really needs that space so that they they're almost looking from the rooftop uh, down to to see the entire span of this man's career. You have to remember when you're living your life, you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know anything about it. And she really captured what it is like to be a struggling actor working in Hollywood to come so close so many times to, he almost got the role um, that Alan Ladd got, this gun for hire, which would have sent him, you know, skyrocketing the way it did Alan Ladd, but he didn't get it. And it just shows the times in which he lived, what, what he went through, the number of times, the struggles of a of an really an actor it's a mm-hmm. right it's, and then my book um i basically after Dee passed away i thought before i i left by the way i left warner brothers for like 10 months during the time Dee was ill because he needed he and carolyn needed help she had fallen and broken her leg and she was already in the hospital and then he came down mm-hmm. with this terminal illness and he actually came down with it a couple of years before but hadn't told me um, and so when he ended up in the hospital, he asked if I could come in and be his personal assistant and, and caregiver at the end of his life, and I did that. But after he passed away and after I'd taken care of Carolyn for a number of additional months, I realized before I go back to work at Warner Brothers, I have got to write this book or I'm going to get caught up in other people's plans and goals, and the book will never get written. Right, right. And I thought, well... I wonder how much stuff I have. And I got to thinking about it, starting to scope it out, what is going into this book. And I thought, maybe I have 150 pages. Well, I started to go into the phone logs and into the journals, and I started putting all this stuff down. And the book actually ended up being, no, don't freak, because I did edit it, but it ended up being like 762 pages long. There was just so much there. Um Terry Rio, the, the biographer of D, actually edited it for me because, I mean, I'm so close to this material. I wasn't sure what to take out and what to make, you know, to make it all hang together, but she did a marvelous job of editing it. And there's a whole other book, you know, that, that didn't get into this one. The reason it was edited this way is because, as Terry told me, the man has just passed away. The first three quarters of the book are absolutely hysterical and wonderful, and you get to you get a sense of what it was like to be in his presence. The last part is, you know, the the, the end times. He was still very funny. He was still always concerned about Carolyn and always concerned about me and always concerned about what his death was going to do to us. Um, mm-hmm. So um, the last part of the book is a little bit about that because I was trying to look at this book when I did decide okay let's write it I thought 
if I was a fan and didn't know D the way I know D, what would I want to know about D? Right. What would I want confirmed with me? What intuitions do I have as a fan about D that maybe I don't know for sure? Mm -hmm. And I had an awful lot of fans come up to me and say, gee, he seemed like a good man. I don't want them to just think he seemed like a good man. He was a good man. Right. And this book basically is, I take you by the hand, I, I show you from the very first day I met him until the day he passed away, uh, show and tell. This is what he was like on a daily basis, mm -hmm. uh, and the times when I was with him, obviously. A lot of people read this subtitle as sounding like, the subtitle of my book is, My Life and Times with a Remarkable Gentleman Actor. They seem to think that means, my life and times with a remarkable gentleman actor. It means my life and times with a remarkable gentleman actor. There is... The only thing that's in this book is about my times with him. My right. life is right. bigger than that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I understand. Bigger than that? Maybe my life is smaller than that. But <laughs> but um, that isn't an egotistical subtitle. I just wanted people to know this man was a remarkable gentleman actor and that I had some insights at having become a friend of him from being a fan to becoming a friend that I wanted to confirm for them. I wanted them to realize he really was what he looked like. Right, that there was this was not any kind of a uh, an illusion or just, you know, when you took away uh, when the people weren't around him, you know, you were with right. him many times where well, it was just you, you know, you, D, Carolyn and and right. you know, you would have uh, it was he was genuine. He was just the same way, you know, during those times as he would appear to people at conventions. So That's right. You know, there was I, no mask. He right. Was, he, right. was, he was the full meal deal. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I've, yeah. ne I've never, ever, and I, I've talked to lots of different people, fans, conventions, seen people, and I, I've, you know, and it's, you know, everyone has an off day now and then, but I've never heard anything about him that, that was like he, you know, a bad word, I guess, is the way, you know, the way to put it. I mean, he, he truly really seemed to care for the fans, was very, very appreciative of of all the opportunities uh, Star Trek had given him over the years and what the fans have, had done. And I, I just had really always enjoyed seeing him. He was one of the favorites of mine, at least, seeing in person. You know, sometimes they get up there and, you know, I've been in a lot of these where, you know, they'll, act, they'll ask an actor a question. And, you know, a lot of them will just turn the question into some kind of a joke, you know. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh and it does, you know, it kind of, I understand that they're trying to be funny and they're trying to entertain, but it, it, it sometimes it comes off a little like, uh, you know, I came here, I ask you a question, and then that's that's what you're giving me, kind of, and it's, uh, right. you know, I don't think a lot of times they're trying to be mean, I think they're trying to entertain, but, right. you know, I never saw D do that. Uh, another, another one of the actors that I've seen, um, Patrick Stewart, for example, I've always mm -hmm. thought is, is very, you know, appreciative of the fans it always answers the questions right he he doesn't really they don't you know put yeah. on a lot of uh he doesn't really put on a lot of airs or anything like that uh right. and it's uh I, i've always really appreciated that kind of thing and it can still be yeah. it can still be entertaining you know to do that oh so. absolutely they don't they they listen they understand not just the question but the intent behind the question the heart behind the question and they respond with a full heart they, right, they actually exactly. take that. They take the moment while they're listening to fully involve themselves in that person, that person, and that question at that moment, 
is really the most important thing that's happening exactly. at that moment. Right. And so when they respond, it is not flippant. Once in a while, I would see D do something that, would, if somebody would say something so particularly wonderful about him himself, I think he had this humility thing, this humble thing that would kind of make him, oh my, there was this one case in Los Angeles when a lady said, you know, I have never seen you before, but seeing the way you interact with your fans and how wonderful you are about the little animals at the North Shore Animal League, I just wanted to tell you what a very kind, kind gentleman you are. Well, he got he got tears in his eyes over that. Mm-hmm. Right. And he had to wait for a minute, and then he said, then he kind of jokingly said back to her, now how can you believe that when you've seen all those bad guy roles I played, all the, all the heavies he played in Western, right, ex- you know. Exactly. And then he kind of left. But that was his moment to say, okay, look, I'm not the second coming, but thank you very much. I mean, he was trying to deflect that and say, sure, I'm not sure. perfect, but thank you so much for for showing me that I reflect that. Right, right. You know? Yeah, that that's, uh, it's, it's uh, I think that's a very, uh, that's very fitting the way he would respond to that kind of a question, you know, that suited him well. I mean, I, I you know, other people may say something like, you know, I don't know, you, you haven't seen me on like, you know, Monday mornings or something like that. I mean, no, right. he, he was just trying to be, you know, well, I'm, I'm you know, thank you very much. And, uh, right. and just, right. uh, you know, it, it's hard to take a compliment like that sometimes. I mean, that, that's, oh, a, that's absolutely. a pretty, uh, Yes, big, that's a big uh, a big thing to hear uh, from people, and uh, when you know, you know, you still look, put your pants on the same way everybody else does. Right, and, right. And that was another thing he said. He said, you know, if I really sat and thought about it for any length of time at all, about what people think of me and the adulation people have for this Dr. McCoy thing, he said, I'd probably lose my mind. I just don't do that because I take out the garbage. You know, I do. I'm I'm a, I'm a human being. Yep. Yep. And he didn't want people to hold him in any higher esteem than they would help hold their um, their their mail carrier. Mm-hmm. If you love me, love me for what it is that I reflect, not because of what I do for a living. Right, exactly. Um, and so he was wonderful in that way. Yeah, the, um, the what I wanted to kind of just to sort of round things out a little bit here and... and uh, finish off were there um we've gone through quite a bit uh, of different you know times where you've had and, and experiences were there maybe one or two other particular memories uh, of d in all the times you were with him that that uh, you would like to share with uh, the listeners just oh. any anything in particular i'm sure that's probably a you know that's like one of those questions like uh well you know name name two of your favorite you know times in your life or something i mean it's difficult pick but one it, right yeah pick one yeah I know. um i'll pick one okay um because i was involved in animal welfare work as well at one point i adopted a weak boned african serval cat it's a wild cat from africa but he was born in captivity he didn't know he was a wild cat let alone a cat i think he probably thought he was one of the family mm-hmm. but when I first moved down to California, Deacon, that was his name, had to stay at Tippy Hedron's Shambhala Preserve while I looked for a landlord who would allow me to have a wild animal, so-called, in the backyard. Yeah. Um, I had all the permits to have him, but finding the landlord who would let you have this um, animal in your backyard, knee-high cat, was, you know, another trip altogether. So during that time, 
Dee and Carolyn literally went around knocking door to door trying to get people to allow, you know, people who were renting to allow, you know, a friend of theirs with a big cat to stay in their yard. I mean, how many people would do that for you? I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, I think but, when I was looking, uh, I looked at a couple of your links online. I think there's a couple of photographs of, of you and Dee and this cat, uh, Deacon, right. together right. and... Uh, the uh, I, I know he was he was heavily into animals, and I think that you have done a lot. You said, you know, various animal shelters, and right. it was, um, you know, I'm a big animal lover, and it's, uh, I think, mm-hmm. you know, people that are involved in that, you know, there's a certain, these, these animals a lot of times get in trouble. They can't take care of themselves. Yeah. They get in situations that uh they need some sort of like a protector and I, I i you know those kinds of people i i have always found you know d fits that that kind of role real well obviously with the right. way he would interact and, with- and deacon was rescued my servant was rescued right um, right i don't advocate the keeping of exotic pets you have to dedicate your life to them like you do a child and they never grow up and you can't have a vacation because who else is who else can you trust who else can they trust? Sure. That kind of a situation. Yep. So it's yep. a, that is a huge, huge commitment. But where I was going with this story was... Okay, go ahead. After about eight months in California, I still didn't have what I felt was a really reliable full-time job. I was still temping and stuff, so Deacon was still up at Tippy Hedron's Shambhala Preserve. And uh, I would go up and visit him every weekend, religiously, and I mean just go up there and let him know he was not abandoned. I would get him off the hill as soon as I could. After about eight months of this, Dee and Carolyn, well, Deacon was 35 miles away from them, and they wanted to meet him. So um, one day Carolyn called me up, and she says, uh, okay, I don't know how soon Deacon's going to get off the hill, so we want to go up to Shambhala and meet him. Can we do that? And I said, absolutely, of course you can. So we um, borrowed a friend's car, because my car was kind of a little rattle trap, and I didn't want to take the Kellys up in a little rattle trap. Um and we went up to meet Deacon, and he fell in love with Carolyn right away because she walked in the, in the, into the enclosure, and she had this childlike, complete trust in him. Most people who meet a knee-high cat don't feel particularly confident or comfortable, especially if the wild cat. Well, she was the type of person who probably, if I had let her, would have walked up and just embraced him around the neck. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. and so he felt her love. He did not feel any sense of um, intimidation, whereas yeah. most people who wanted to meet him were at least a little bit afraid. And mm-hmm. if people are a little bit afraid, an animal senses that, and they become afraid, thinking, "Why are you afraid? If right. you're afraid, why are you approaching me? If you're approaching me and you're afraid, that might mean you're about to fight me." Right. Yep. They they're definitely so he, sense yeah. that. Yep. They have this fight or flight response. If you're coming to me out of full love, I'm not. I'm not um, suggesting you do this to a bear in the woods. Oh, sure, right. But um, where you have an animal in captivity, you have to develop a sense of of trust and mutual respect for each other, so that neither of you is approaching the other with any degree at all of fear or trepidation. And she did that. I mean, she was just full heartedly in love with that cat years before she ever met him, and he just came. Now, when Dee came into the cage, he was a little more respectful, plus he was a guy. Deacon was raised by a gal, mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. And most guys who approached Deacon were veterinarians or doctors. <laughs> oh, well, that's appropriate, huh? Yes. So he was just a little more um, standoffish with D, and D appreciated it. I mean, D didn't say, I must pet this cat. He'd go, no, he's not comfortable. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, when Deacon finally got off the hill from Shambhala and came into a backyard in Encino, from that moment on, D and Carolyn were Deacon's second set of parents. I mean, he drooled all over them. He, you know, he, we have lots and lots of pictures of Dee and Carolyn with the cat because he, they were one couple that Deacon felt completely comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that's because they had this innate love of animals that, that animals could sense. And young children could sense that in Dee and Carolyn, too. I mean, I can't even count the number of times I'd be at a, um, convention like at a restaurant with them and three and four year old children would come up and just bounce around and jump all over them and yeah and yeah because they just sensed love is here i'm safe here this is a good place to be yep yep that's so. uh well animals are very intuitive children you know they they just they can pick up that very easily and it was you can't really hide who you are i don't think around an animal yes. like you know, an and animal children. or a small right. child, and yeah, I've even I've seen that too when D would be on stage, and you know, some little girl would be in the front row or something like that, and he'd say, "Come on up here" or something like that. Come on up and see Doctor McCoy, and, and mm-hmm. you know, it would just be uh, well. Let's just and they say, would just you know, dance. They couldn't yeah. even stand still. They're just let's so just say the, the 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 cameras and flash bulbs were just blaring yes. all over the place when that would happen. Yes. So, yes. Um, well, I really really wanted to just. To, say i appreciate the time that you've taken chris to to talk to us today and to just to final wrap it up a little bit tell everyone and i'm gonna put links to uh your book uh on the podcast notes for this show but just let everyone know where you can find it and i and um and just let them know about it okay thank you um the book is called deforest kelly a harvest of memories you can get it at amazon.com you can certainly go there for the reviews and stuff, but if you go directly to the publisher, you'll get it at a discount. And the publisher it can, is online at www.authorhouse.com. When you get to that site, just uh, click on the tab that says Bookstore, and then there will be a little search uh, field. Type in Christine M. Smith, Christine with a K, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, M. Smith, and hit search or go or whatever that little thing, the radio button is, and the books will pop up for you there. Great, great. Well, I'll be sure to link that also uh, in the notes, like I said, for this uh, podcast. The um, the last thing I was going to ask you about, uh, now do you, I know you were at the recent uh, con- convention in, in your area, your neck of the woods, the uh, the expo convention out in Seattle over the anniversary weekend. Do you do conventions very often, you know, bring your books along to sign and that kind of thing? Are there any appearances or anything upcoming like that for you that you wanted to mention? This is my third, actually, it was that weekend, the big Star Trek big weekend, was my second and third convention appearances ever. I did one in Seattle last year. I did Planet Expo this year. And then the very next day I flew down to Sacramento to do the creation conventions um, down there. Adam Malin has contacted me about possibly doing the Las Vegas convention next year, 
and a couple of other conventions. Nothing, nothing written in stone yet, okay. but in Utah okay. and some other places have contacted me. So I ant- Oh, and I'll probably be in Germany next year um, for the FedCon. Okay. That's in the works. So, yeah, yes, during this next year, I should be out and about. Okay, great. Yeah, I know I've been at, you know, a lot of those where people will have the various books out in the dealer's room for signings and that. And it's a little bit at the, uh, right now, after the whole big uh, early September 40th anniversary convention, you know, kind of extravaganza, it seemed like there were Star Trek conventions uh, in like three or four places at the same time. I think we're at a little bit of a a lull now until probably early spring next summer for uh, for that but i'm sure uh you know if anyone uh grabs your book i'm sure they they'll find you and and get it signed and yes absolutely i, I just want to uh, say i really appreciated this I, I it was um you know d was just an amazing guy i've uh it was it was a big shock i think to all the star trek fans w- when they heard about him passing away and it was um it's definitely uh you know kind of uh the world is is not uh, as nice a place now, but you know, with your book and other people's memories, I think uh, I think that helps a lot. And and there are always Star Trek reruns and DVDs, and and we can always check them out there. So thanks, Chris. But but hang on the the uh, the line. I want to talk to you a little bit more when we're done. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Just want to uh, thank uh, Christine Smith for taking time out again to visit with us and talk to us about DeForest Kelly today. That was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate it. Uh, We'll be back this weekend with a regular show all about Star Trek music. Until then, this is Rico signing off for this Wednesday night. This has been a Rick Dosti production. This podcast, copyright 2006, all rights reserved.